Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway. When it comes to elections, there's always a key voting block that gets the media attention. You know, if candidate X wins fill-in-the-blank vote, they'll win the election. We've heard that about the Latino vote. Who will win the election three weeks from now? The outcome could depend on how members of one very large constituency respond to the urgent call, VOTA. The white working class. With the general election in mind, Hillary Clinton is on a two-day swing through Appalachia, trying to connect with rural white working class voters. Appalachia coal has taken a huge hit. And suburban women. Women. White and educated. Experts say they hold the key to this year's midterms. Can I have a small beet salad to go, please? But a core constituency of the Democratic electorate has not gotten the same level of attention. African Americans. African Americans are just like other voters. They need to be asked. They need to be not taken for granted. They need to be included. That's Congresswoman Gwen Moore. She represents the 4th District of Wisconsin, which includes Milwaukee County, a Democratic stronghold, where 60,000 fewer votes were cast in 2016 than in 2012. Congresswoman Moore thinks that's because Democrats didn't campaign hard enough in her district. You could hear a mouse pee on cotton in Milwaukee. It was so slow. Still, the narrative that emerged about the Democrats' loss in 2016 was about the white working class. And then this happened. And CNN projects Doug Jones, the Democrat. He will be the next United States senator from Alabama. Who has defeated Republican Roy Moore. First Alabama Democrat in a quarter century. President Trump has just tweeted his congratulations to the Democrats. This is a dramatic Democratic upset in deep red Alabama. A ruby red state. Becoming the first Democratic senator from Alabama in a generation. I have been waiting all my life and now I just don't know what the hell to say. The big story here is the African-American turnout. Black Americans showed up in record numbers, as we've been reporting. The numbers, the percentages that came out to this election. Especially black women. African-Americans made up 29% of Alabama voters. Rival what we saw for presidential elections with the first African-American president, Barack Obama. Doug Jones wins the Senate race in Alabama, a victory due in large part to the influence of African-American voters. The party itself acknowledged for the first time that black women were the core. That was a turning point, according to Amy Allison, founder of She the People. And I would also extend that to women of color, to Asian-American women who are the second most progressive force in a fast-growing part of the electorate, and Latinas, as well as, as Muslim voters. This is a group of progressive voters, and we never got much cred or respect or investment in our strategy. Alicia Garza agrees. She's a founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network and the head of the Black Futures Lab. The frustration that I think a lot of Black communities faced was that it was already assumed that Black people would vote for a, a particular candidate. And I think what we saw instead was that um, because of the lack of deep engagement in Black communities, specifically after uh, the administration of the first Black president of the United States, is that Black turnout went down and Democrats lost the election. So what are they doing about it? The Black Futures Lab set out to survey Black people 
about their experiences with the aim of actually listening to them. The results of the survey were recently released in a report titled More Black Than Blue, Politics and Power in the 2019 Black Census. I spoke with Alicia Garza about the findings. The issues that Black communities find are the most pressing problems facing our communities in our survey sample. Low wages that are not enough to support a family, the rising cost of college, unaffordable health care. It looks at unaffordable housing as some of the top issues that Black communities are facing. Another issue that we found that Black communities were facing is a concern about violence that exists in our communities, particularly police violence and violence that is as a result of policing. It's interesting when I when I look at the, those list of priorities, where and how intensely Black voters feel about those, it kind of reads like a Bernie Sanders press release. And yet, Bernie Sanders did really struggle in 2016 winning over African-American voters, black voters, and continues to have to answer questions about why he's not doing as well among black voters this time. Can you help us square that circle? He's hitting all of the issues, but he's not winning over the voters. I think that it's really not just a Bernie Sanders problem, although we did see this very poignantly in 2016, certainly in the primary between Bernie Sanders and Secretary Clinton. But to be honest, it's a problem that exists in politics in general, where what you have is advice that's being given by consulting firms that are largely white-led that will tell you that Black voters are already in the pocket, that you should not talk about issues of race. You'll see pundits out you know, on the news circuits saying that things like identity politics are splitting the parties. And I think what we find on the ground is that people understand very clearly that what's dividing us is not talking about race. What's dividing us is not talking about the racial divide. And so when you try and talk about issues in such a way where they are presented as a silver bullet that affects all communities equally, the only people that lose from that, to be frank, are the people who are locked out of the economy, the people who are locked out of prosperity, and the people who are locked into poverty. And the reality is when we look at poverty rates in this country and we look at who is concentrated under the poverty line, it is communities of color and it is black communities. It was not a surprise to us that low wages that were not enough to support a family were one of the top issues impacting black census respondents. What was surprising to us is that candidates in their campaigns continue to push race neutral messaging when we all know that the economy is racialized. We are all very clear that communities of color tend to be locked into low wage, low paying, low road jobs. Uh, we know that those jobs tend to not carry medical benefits or health benefits. We know that those jobs are often locking out communities who may have histories of incarceration. And of course, we know that black communities are disproportionately incarcerated. And when we look at black women in particular, who have been seen as a key block of black communities for a, a supportive voting base for the Democratic Party, we find that black women's populations are increasing in prisons and jails across the country. And the number one reason that black women are being locked up at disproportionate rates is because of economic crimes, things like passing a bad check or other ways in which uh, black women have 
found that they have had to learn how to survive. When you listen to many of these Democrats, almost all of these Democrats now, when they are talking about issues like the economy, they are using words like structural racism. They are talking now about these issues in a way that, quite frankly, I don't know that we've heard before from multiple candidates. It's not just one candidate that's doing this. Um, Do you think that's a sign that Democratic candidates are getting it? Are you wary that they are using the words, but they may not follow through on the actions? Well, this is an important question, and I would answer it two ways. I think that the reason that candidates, some candidates on the Democratic side, are now starting to talk about structural racism is because they've been forced to by a movement that has changed the country. And to be frank, Black people have been changing the landscape of politics in this country over the last six years or more. That's largely related to the uprisings in many communities across the country in relationship to policing, police violence, and police accountability, which has unlocked additional conversations about the ways in which Black people are facing barriers that don't allow us to succeed under any circumstances. I thought this sentence, and my producer and I both agreed this was really powerful, where you said that electorally engaged respondents do not need to convince those who are less engaged about what problems are important or even which solutions to adopt, but rather about the effectiveness of taking action. In other words, the challenge isn't that those who are not involved politically are doing so because they don't have problems that are similar to those who are involved politically or that they don't agree on the solutions with people who are engaged politically, but that they say, you know what, it's not going to matter whether I vote or not because I don't trust that the system's going to work. I mean, I think we see that certainly generationally. There are a whole set of uh, current and potential voters who don't have the lived experience of not being able to vote by law, but certainly have the lived experience of their government leaving them behind. I can tell you that a huge politicizing moment in my life uh, was the Rodney King trials, right? Where essentially, you know, several white officers were acquitted of beating Rodney King to a pulp. That is an example of how black communities feel that government doesn't have their back and that change is not actually inevitable. Fast forward a little bit, you see uh, these young people have the experience of black people being left on roofs in Louisiana uh, during Hurricane Katrina. These black people have the experience of unarmed black people being killed by the police and those police officers not being held accountable. And in fact, as we speak right now, the officers who killed Eric Garner are on trial. This is a defining aspect of a particular generation who we expect to engage in politics as it is. A successful campaign and a successful candidate will be able to understand how to bridge the gap between the experiences of older Black voters in this country and younger Black voters in this country, both of whom share concerns about the same issues. But one of those groups feels that it is not inevitable that change will happen through elections. What I know is that elections don't change everything, but they certainly do matter. Elections are the platform upon which we can insert our demands for what we want from our government, 
what we want from our representatives, and what we want from our democracy. And it's important that if a candidate wants to win the Black vote and understands how important the Black vote is to them becoming an elected official representing our communities, that they are really going to have to speak to the issues that we care about. They're going to have to demonstrate that they have some literacy in terms of how structural racism and gender oppression and things like that shape our lives. But they're also going to have to come with it with a set of policies that prove that they understand how to get through those barriers and ensure that Black families can live well, just like all families in America deserve to live well. Alicia Garza, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Well, before we get to the general election, we have to look at the primary. And there, African-American voters have a very big role to play. In 2016, Black voters made up a quarter of the electorate. One of the first primary states is South Carolina, and black voters there are a majority of the Democratic primary electorate. Joe Biden is in the lead there, even though there are multiple black candidates on the ballot. I always say that Joe Biden has an Obama halo and he's kind of judged on an Obama curve. That's Bakari Sellers, a former South Carolina state representative and a CNN political commentator who has endorsed Kamala Harris. And he's skeptical that Biden is going to keep that lead. I was talking to my dad recently, who's kind of my compass. You know, my dad is the person who goes to the grocery store every day, spends two hours in there talking to people, and then goes and spends another 30 minutes talking to people at the post office. We live in a small town with three stoplights and a blinking light. My dad said, look, everybody I talk to out here likes Joe Biden. To the person, they like Joe Biden. But he also said, ain't nobody going to miss an event. Ain't nobody going to be late to work. Ain't nobody going to be late to dinner to go vote for Joe Biden. So that talks about that level of excitement that's just not there. Things can change, uh, but if the election was today, Donald Trump would still probably be president of the United States. This even though in 2018 you had incredible surges in turnout from young voters and from voters of color, despite the fact that a lot of Democrats on the ballot, especially in some of these Midwestern states, weren't exactly the most exciting kind of candidates. Do you think that suggests that maybe the motivating factor of Trump can overcome the sort of not energizing Democratic nominee? It's going to play a role, but I, I, we can't rely on Trump to be our turnout mechanism. Mm -hmm. People have to be excited about what you're going to do for them. Some candidates are trying to do that. Uh, there's some who are running substance-driven campaign, and I think substance usually wins, although that's, people will probably turn their nose up when they hear me say that. But giving people a reason to vote for them instead of saying I'm not someone else is usually the way to, to win elections, and we have to do a better job of that. Do you think that the candidates now are taking African-American voters more seriously now than they were in previous elections? I think so. I mean, because I, I believe that African-American voters are holding candidates more accountable. I mean, you have to have an agenda for black America, period. There is no more showing up at the church, coming to a high school football game and doing a fish fry two months before the election thinking you're going to get black votes. That no longer works. So this is going to be something that candidates are going to have to pay attention to. You know, Bernie Sanders got destroyed in 2016 in the South, and he lost the primary effectively in the South because he could not figure out a way to communicate with voters of color. 
a lot of candidates have learned that lesson. And right now we're seeing one of my very good friends, Pete Buttigieg, have that have those same struggles. I had a phone call with someone from Pete's camp asking, you know, just how do we get black voters? Because they have these events in South Carolina's and black voters aren't coming to them. And I said, that's part of your problem. Pete's problem is that he's waiting on black voters to come to him. Don't know black voters know him, so they don't trust him. So he's going to have to meet them where they are. And I think that this is a learning curve for a lot of these uh, candidates running for president. And when you think about this internal debate that seems to be going on between winning over these white working class voters who defected in 2016 versus keeping the base energized, how do you think this plays out? Well, unfortunately, it's become an or conversation. Let me back up. First, people define working class, unfortunately, and that's code for white voters, when there are a lot of working class black and brown voters in this country as well. But I don't think it's a or proposition. I think it's an and proposition. And I think that we have to focus on driving the base out. I just have a hard time believing that somebody who voted for um, Barack Obama and then voted for Donald Trump is going to all of a sudden come back to the Democratic Party. That's just my my fundamental belief. You talk to all voters and you give them all a reason to vote for you, but you don't bet on all voters. And I, I'm not betting on individuals to come back. I'm about expanding and creating new voters and new parts of the electorate. So let's talk about the South Carolina primary now, a place you know quite well. Again, you were mm-hmm. a state representative there. You, you worked for Obama in 2008 there, and you're back in Kamala Harris now. The thing about South Carolina in the past, at least the most recent past, 08 and 16, is that one candidate was able to really consolidate the African-American vote, getting 75, 85 percent of the vote. Obama in 08, Hillary Clinton in 16. I'm going to say that's probably not going to happen this time. Do you agree that the vote is going to be split among many candidates? Or do you think think there will be be a consolidated? No, there won't be a consolidated. I say that saying that my good friend and brother Cory Booker has not had the best showing in polls. He's around 2%. So if he is still around in South Carolina, that is the most important thing. I think that you will see Joe Biden and Kamala Harris take a large portion of the black vote and Cory Booker take a a slither. Um, If he's not, I think that could be a determining factor between who wins that race. I anticipate it being very close in South Carolina between Kamala and Joe. And then the kicker is, you know, people like to talk about the California primary and how many delegates are at stake and all of that good stuff. But you also have Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, Arkansas, Mississippi Mm -hmm. on Super Tuesday. And there are going to be a lot of votes to be won in the South where we know what votes count, not just black voters, but black women voters in particular. And you think that South Carolina is basically going to be a very important signal to voters in those states to say, okay, this is the candidate that looks the strongest or this is the front runner right now. Correct. And it helps with it. It never hurts to have that momentum. I, I honestly say that Clark County is probably one of the more important counties in this primary cycle. And that's kind of weird. That's very nuanced to go down to a county um, in this primary cycle. But Clark you're County, saying Clark Nevada, County, Las Vegas. Which correct. Is Las Vegas. There is okay. a very large portion of black voters in Clark County, Nevada, uh, which are going to help determine that primary process. You know, I think that that will be an important kind of litmus test, and then you'll see it play out on a larger scale in South Carolina. So what you're saying is, instead of waiting until South Carolina, look to see how the candidates do in Clark County, and if African-American turnout goes up in Clark County as a sign of who can do well with 
African-American voters in South Carolina. Correct. And, and just a reminder, when, you, when you're looking at Iowa, I mean, there are a lot of slithers you can take. You know, when Barack Obama won that, the Iowa caucuses, the caucus participation went from two to four. So it nearly doubled with African-American participation. Now, most people kind of cast that aside. But when you look back at it over time, you realize that, wait, that actually was a statistic we could look at, not just for the rest of the primary, but it actually played out over the general as well, because you saw that engagement and excitement amongst black voters. Bakari Sellers, thank you so much thank for you. talking to me. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I hope to open the conversation about working parents a bit. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier, to find out how they balance being a dad with a successful career. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. South Carolina is a really good place for candidates to test their message with African-American voters. That's Felicia Eady, a reporter with South Carolina Public Radio. She's been following the candidates as they campaign across her state. I'm from South Carolina. I grew up in a rural part of Berkeley County, and I remember when President Bill Clinton visited that part of the state back in 1996 amid the wave of black churches burned in suspicious fires. We have to say to all of you who've been afflicted by this, we know that we're not going back to those dark days, but we are now reminded that our job is not done. That visit was a big deal for the people in that area. And fast forward some 20-odd years, those same voters and their family members in those same areas like Greeleyville and Hemingway and Manning, Gresham and Britain's Neck are once again getting this repeated attention, not from the president, but not yet, but from people who say they want to be president. And again, these visits are a big deal for this faithful group of Democratic voters. Do you think this is different than, say, in 2008 or 2016? or maybe even going back to 2004, just the intense interest and the number of candidates who are in South Carolina this early in the process? It does feel different. It really does. Um, since the beginning of, beginning of this year, since January, we've seen candidates come through. And like I said earlier, they're going to the dirt road towns. Um, for example, um, Senator Cory Booker was in Sumter, South Carolina, earlier this year. He had a town hall there. He spoke with students at an HBCU. Um, also, Senator Kamala Harris, she was in the small town of Hemingway not that long ago, and she spoke with students and, 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 um, um, and adults there as well. Also, Senator Bernie Sanders, he and I believe Beto O'Rourke, they were both, they both spent some time in Denmark, South Carolina, very small town, high African-American population, and then also recently some really high profile issues in that town. Um, They are dealing with some water issues very similar to that of Flint, Michigan. So I think Mm -hmm. those visits uh, really stand out with people. Also Manning, South Carolina, that PD region of the state that have seen back-to-back flooding because of recent hurricanes and, and rain events. We see candidates in that area as well. And so I think these repeated, it almost seems like strategic repeated visits are sticking out. And I really think voters are paying attention. And I think they appreciate having the attention of so many people so early. And a lady I spoke to 
um, in Sumter, again, at that Cory Booker town hall, she talks about uh, uh, experiencing this part of the process so early. I appreciate being on the front end to hear exactly what his um, stance is on the different areas. And I actually have about six pages of notes. Is there a reason you think they're going to rural areas and putting a focus on rural areas, especially this early in the process? Like any relationship, you have to put the time in. I think that candidates are realizing that voters here in South Carolina, black voters here in South Carolina, know the importance of their vote. And I think that they really, and because there are so many of them, they're trying to stand out early on with this really important block. And so I think they really understand that we need to get to these people, um, their churches, their community centers, their towns, and we need to let them know our name so that they can recognize our name when it comes down to vote. How are voters processing this? When you talk to voters after these events or as you're going from town to town and interviewing people about politics, what are they telling you about this field of candidates? The voters that I've spoken with have, again, they are they appreciate having an, having options. I think um, in the past, of course, we, we haven't had 24 candidates um, to, to choose from, so they appreciate having options. But even after the town hall and even after the strong applause and the, and the really good questions that they, they give to the um, or they ask to the candidate, they still want details and specifics. And I go back to uh, that town hall with Senator Cory Booker. There was a, a lady there that asked about uh, prison reform and then another lady that asked about his stance on how to help people that cannot afford health care. They are... They appreciate the multiple visits, but they are really looking for details on how they will help them every day of the week. Because for a lot of residents here in South Carolina, it, it's, it's, it's a struggle for them to make it, you know, week in and week out. We also hear from reporters who are out on the trail in other early states, as well as South Carolina, that what voters are saying um, is they're looking for a candidate, first and foremost, who can beat Donald Trump. They're looking for the quote-unquote most electable candidate. And in that sense, Joe Biden has gotten something of a lift. Is is that something that you're hearing from voters, that they're looking for, ultimately, they're really looking for somebody who can win in November and beat Donald Trump? You know, for me, that's been kind of hard to gauge here when I talk with voters at these events. By far, hands down, yes, they they want Donald Trump out of the out of the Oval Office. Um, but then again, we see them still gravitate to who their favorites are, or and, may, and maybe that's them holding out hope that their favorite can beat Donald Trump. Um, but at a couple of town halls that Senator Kamala Harris had uh, in the capital city in Columbia, um, there were questions, and I talked with uh, voters um, afterwards who say yes. We need to get Donald Trump out of the office, but they are very strongly behind Senator Kamala Harris. Um, she has a very strong base uh, here in South Carolina. She's been here repeated uh, many, many times. She'll be back here this weekend. And so I'm not exactly sure how that falls. It, it will be interesting to watch and find out, though. You're right there. You're on the ground. You're seeing these candidates in your state, seeing voters interact with them. Is there something that you are picking up there that just isn't getting talked about by the folks here inside the Beltway? What I've noticed is the number of young voters um, Mm -hmm. active in, in this process. A lot of the visits from candidates have been to colleges and universities peppered throughout the state. And a lot of the, a lot of kids, um, when I talk with them after the events, they are not shy about it. They want to know what 
will be in place to help them with the mounting debt that they're taking on to go to college. And a lot of them seem to be very active in the process. Um, so I think the the power of the young voter is something that we will continue to see here in South Carolina. It's going to be interesting to see um, how many of the votes cast will, will come from uh, young South Carolinians. Delisha Eady, reporter for South Carolina Public Radio. We asked you what Democrats need to do to raise Black voter turnout in 2020. Tanisha from Apopka, Florida. In order for me to come out for 2020 and vote for one of these Democrats, uh, the only way they can appeal to me is if they come out to where we're at. My name is Melody. I'm calling from Weymouth. And in order for Democrats to reclaim the Black vote, some equity has to accompany their words. We're tired of the pandering and we are still really behind in this country due to reasons that are not our fault. There's no way for us to put our backing behind anyone who isn't offering something tangible. Hi, this is Leslie from Los Angeles. I think Democrats need to do what they would do for any voter, which is to fully listen and understand the needs of Black voters and address those needs within the Democrat platform. Um, In my opinion, one great strategy to do this is to reach out to leaders of Black-led local grassroots organizations for that type of feedback. Earlier, I spoke with Bakari Sellers, a former South Carolina state representative who backs Kamala Harris. He says that even though Joe Biden is leading in the polls now due in large part to his support from African-American voters, Sellers doesn't think that lead will last. I was talking to my dad recently, who's kind of my compass. My dad said, look, everybody I talk to out here likes Joe Biden. But he also said, ain't nobody going to miss an event. Ain't nobody going to be late to work. Ain't nobody going to be late to dinner to go vote for Joe Biden. But Ted Johnson, the senior fellow at the Brennan Center who studies African-American political and voting behavior, has a hard time imagining black voters rallying around anyone else. The president, Donald Trump, is historically unpopular with black voters. And Joe Biden is doing well among black voters because the perception is he is best situated to remove Donald Trump from the White House. So the things that typically characterize or influence how black voters vote, like descriptive representation by other black candidates or a policy agenda that specifically addresses questions of civil rights protections and racial equality, Those things move further down the list, and number one becomes who can beat Donald Trump. So walk us through why he's seen as the most likely to beat Donald Trump. I talk to a lot of folks who say, well, it's really because he's a white guy. And voters, even Democratic voters, think that the most electable person remains this person who's been the most electable for the 200 plus years we've seen in this country, and it's a white guy. Is that what's driving this? So, yes, but not that's not the whole of it. Uh, I think Mm. the undercurrent here is that the black electorate knows that if they want Donald Trump to lose, it's not going to be the mobilization of black voters alone that's going to cause that loss. It will be the mobilization of black voters, plus the ability to win back white working class voters that were Obama voters for eight years, but that switched to Trump or stayed home in 2016. And Biden is able to combine, or at least the perception is, he can combine those two factors, 
win over black voters, coupled with his steel town Midwest appeal to white working class voters, looks like Biden might have a real shot at winning the White House if he can pull off that coalition. Well, that's really the question, isn't it? Because as you pointed out, these were voters, the ones that Joe Biden theoretically has the best chance of getting back. These are voters who had voted once, maybe twice, for an African-American candidate. What's to say they wouldn't then vote for another African-American candidate? Yeah. So I think this isn't 2008 anymore. And unfortunately, the nation's politics have gotten worse when it comes to matters of race. It used to be that a message of unity, no matter what party you belong to, was the norm and part of the winning message. And whether you followed through on that message was a different question. But that you expressed a message of racial unity was a given. And Donald Trump broke the mold. He showed that it is possible to win with a message of racial divisiveness. The thinking that a black candidate can undo the racial resentment doesn't seem like a practical way forward for black voters specifically and for the electorate in general. And what about the history that there's the recent history of Joe Biden, of course, as the vice president. And then there's the history of being a senator for all these years including votes on issues that are anathema to folks in the African-American community or his grilling and treatment of Anita Hill during that era in 1991. Is that something that is going to be in the back of black voters' minds as they think about Joe Biden as a potential nominee? Yeah, this is a tough question. My sense is black political pragmatism will absolutely take note of Joe Biden's extensive past. But his legislative record is lower on the priority list because of how unpopular Trump is. We've seen an example of this type of pragmatism where I live here in Virginia, where you have Ralph Northam, the governor. It was revealed that he'd worn blackface in the 80s. You had the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, who'd been accused of sexual assault. And then the number three in charge Democrat, the attorney general, also revealed that he had worn blackface in the 80s. Something like 60% of black Virginians wanted all three of those men to stay in place because if they were removed, the next in line would be the Republican Speaker of the House of Delegates. The only thing worse than having potentially a hypocrite or at worst a closet racist in charge of the government is having an explicit, uh, a party that runs on explicitly racist or racially insensitive or xenophobic campaign messages and rhetoric in charge of the state. And so in this way, by forgiving candidates of their past, you almost ascend to the moral high ground. And those candidates now, they are indebted to you. You accrue political capital that you can use to your benefit should that candidate win. So Joe Biden's past may actually turn out to be a benefit for black voters if they're able to hold that past over his head and force him to be more proactive on questions of civil rights and racial equality. Well, it's interesting. In 2016, that was something, the same theory of the case for the Clinton campaign, right? It was, this man is so dangerous. The things he's done are so offensive to women, to voters of color, that of course they're going to turn out and of course they're going to vote against him. And then, of course, we saw that there was a significant drop in turnout, especially among younger African-American voters. 
a lot of folks are wondering if Democrats are making that same mistake in 2020, that if you put just the safest, the guy that looks the most electable on the top of the ticket, that you're going to have those enthusiasm problems again. Right. And so what happens in 16 is the Democrats made a massive miscalculation. They thought that black voter turnout would at least stay steady at the levels that it was in 2008 and 2012. But there is nothing in the history of black voting behavior that would suggest a historic black candidate that had won the presidency and the voter turnout that helped that occur, that that turnout would hold at the same level for a candidate that is not a first time black historic campaign or candidacy. The lesson that Democrats should take from that is you must invest in the outreach efforts that include not just the rhetoric, but the state level staffing and funding to ensure whatever barriers to voting or enthusiasm gaps that are existing in some of these areas with high black concentrations in the Midwest and Pennsylvania, Florida, et cetera, make sure that those folks are mobilized and activated and not rely on Donald Trump's high disapproval numbers as the mobilizing factor. Ted Johnson, thank you so much for coming and talking with me about this. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, we just heard Ted Johnson talking about the importance of mobilizing black voters if Democrats want to win the White House in 2020. One person leading that mobilization effort is Amy Allison, the founder of the political group She the People. I spoke to Amy Allison back in April about the She the People presidential forum that she organized, which was attended by eight presidential candidates and was focused on women of color. A part of our conversation that wasn't able to be included in that show was about the goals of her organization as a whole. Black women have high turnout, are reliable, not only just in the South, but every major win the Democrats have had have been because of women of color, you know, being loyal Democrats. So we're having this conversation in 2019 in the context of the presidential campaigns. And we know that in the next 18 months, $2 billion is going to be raised and spent on the business, the electoral politics. That's everything from investing in TV ads to uh, making a decision to have people on the ground and knocking on doors. Which voters are you going to message to and reach out to and who matters? And if you go for moderate white voters and that's the cornerstone of a what you hope to be a winning strategy, you will not be successful because the, the energy and um, the most likely Democrats are in places where you've got to speak to women of color. And having this debate right now shows that not all Democrats, especially sta- establishment Democrats, haven't gotten the memo. But because I've been a longtime supporter of Stacey Abrams, for example, in Georgia, a southern state, I watched how she built a coalition, leaned deeply into uh, women of color, particularly black women who are 40 percent of the Democratic Party electorate and built a coalition around them and expanded the possibilities for Democrats closer. They've, they're closer to flipping Georgia than they ever have been. Thanks to that strategy. I want all those presidential campaigns to understand if they adopt that strategy and they start now 18 months ahead, they can use the dollars to actually expand the electorate. But more importantly, to beat Trump. 
And that's the argument that we're in right now. And I think there's some Democrats in the party and influential and some donors who are listening and others still still have to unlearn the biases that lead them to a losing strategy. We've got to change things. So who do you think has been doing the good job of that? And who, as you pointed out, you think not gotten the memo? Mm, well, I will say based on and I can't I don't have visibility to what all the campaigns are doing right now. But what's obvious to me is Kamala Harris, by going into the South, by directly going to events and organizations with black women. Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. We stand on the shoulders of women who were leaders. She's leaning into the base. And that is, you know, a good indication that she understands the dynamics of how to win based on a multiracial coalition. In other words, it's like the Obama coalition, which is very powerful, but, you know, new style. I think her campaign has shown indications that that's the way that they're organizing themselves. Elizabeth Warren also, she's going to places like Mississippi. Her, her, and I, I saw it with her in the presidential forum, her ability to weave in racial justice and economic justice, who's talking about black maternal health and talking about how we uh, deal with the fact that three times as many black women die in childbirth than white women and how to deal with this crisis. And she said, I want to talk to the hospitals where most of these births take place. And I want to talk to them in the language they understand, money. And so the way that she was able to marry those two very critical elements that appeal to women of color, coupled with the fact that the campaign has been spending a lot of time in the states. There are seven states that are majority people of color where women of color are the majority of women. And uh, she is definitely appealing and deepening her appeal to particularly black women, but to women of color. I think those two campaigns are showing uh, that they are serious about building an infrastructure that I think not only sets them in a really good position for the primary, but sets up all the necessary components of a successful campaign in some of these states. This argument has been raging now in and among Democrats now since 2016 that there's an either or strategy. Either you go and you win back working class whites and appeal to suburban college educated white voters or you can have voters of color and young people as your coalition. What do you say to that? I say that there always is a choice and I would say the Democrats have been organizing themselves on the previous, on the, on the former. In other words, the bulk of the spending, and let's, I, I wanna talk money, it's a business. Electoral politics is a business grounded in values. So if moderate white voters, you think, are the magic pill that's gonna help you win the White House, it affects everything from where you go, where you campaign, what organizations um, and validators that you bring into the campaign, where you spend your money, what your message is, and how you look at the win number for particular states. Mm -hmm. I would say without hesitation that the campaigns who are not organized around expanding the electorate for the strongest Democrats are in a weak position to actually win the primary and the general because they're relying on and spending the bulk of their resources on the least reliable Democrats out there. We have the numbers to have a winning coalition. When I say women of color are the center of the coalition as the strongest Democrats, it is that 
you start from there but build out a multiracial inclusive coalition, which includes white voters. It includes the whole range of voters. But it is a new way of thinking, a new playbook that leans deeply into creating a coalition expressly that embraces this identity and centers on these on these voters. So in a state like Texas, Texas went from a 16-point gap to a three-point gap in this last uh, midterms. And what that means is Texas could turn blue. But the way that we turn blue is not going after Trump voters in that state. The way we turn Texas blue is by tapping into the force of the 5 million eligible unregistered Latinas in, in the state. There's a, incredible numbers that require an investment. So they, you, know, you can't say, oh, it's both and. And that actually isn't the way that electoral politics has you know, works. So right. what we're looking for as women of color are the campaigns that are ready to do on the ground, old fashioned door to door field organizing in those key states, because I think that's going to be the, the, the key to victory. Amy Allison is founder of She the People. Back in early 2017, as I read what felt like the 250th story from a national media outlet looking for answers to the 2016 election from a rural diner filled with white working class voters, I went on something of a tweet storm. The 2016 election was so much more complicated than reporters were describing. Where were the profiles of the young African-American voters who sat out this election? What about the suburban women that Hillary Clinton counted on to turn the tide for her? Or the college students who supported Jill Stein? But as we've turned the corner to the 2020 election, I am pleased to see that more and more reporters are paying attention to these voters, especially to African-American voters. And black voters are also making it clear that they aren't going to be patiently waiting for Democratic candidates to find them. They're demanding a level of accountability and attention they have not been afforded in previous elections. And they aren't shy about calling out those who fail to do so. It's also likely that this is the first primary election, at least in my memory, where the African-American vote may not consolidate behind one candidate. Back in 2008, the majority of African-Americans supported Obama. In 2016, they were behind Hillary Clinton. And that near-universal support from black voters was critical to their ability to win the nomination. But what happens when that vote is split multiple ways over multiple primaries? No one really knows. Which is yet another reason why this Democratic primary is so fluid and so unpredictable. That's all for us today. We appreciate you being with us this week. And a special shout out to our associate producer, Lydia Jean Cott, who is leaving the show. LJ, thank you for everything. We're going to miss you. Thanks so much for listening. This is Politics with Amy Walter on The Takeaway. <laughs>